Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now, Ryanair has cut its full-year profit guidance today. The no-frills carrier blames the impact of the slump in the pound following the Brexit vote. Let's get more from John Strickland, JLS consulting aviation analyst, still with us, Parathana, and head of European equities at Fidelity International. John, this would probably be very painful for Michael O'Leary because he had campaigned, first of all, for the UK to stay within the EU, and then he's held off, right, to, to trying to not cut its profit guidance. And then finally today was too much because, of course, uh, a weaker pound went on fares. It also uh, has uh, quite a big impact on yields. Yeah, well, pound sterling is such a, an important currency for Ryanair, with around about a quarter of their revenues being earned in GBP. Uh, their biggest uh, flying activities out of the UK. Stansted is by far their biggest uh, base airport, even bigger than their, their home market, uh, Dublin. And they're indicating they're going to work against this in terms of uh, further pressuring uh, cost reductions uh, by driving volumes. And they have a pretty stunning performance in filling their seats. They fill about 93, 94% of seats. But of course, the fact they have to remit sterling into euros as a euro denominated company is a fundamental problem. Can they hedge? They, 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 they could hedge have hedged already, but I guess at the present time. Will they hedge it, now? It, uh, Difficult to say, I mean, because there's so much volatility. We just can't tell how this thing is going to play out in, in terms of the next few weeks and months. All right, but, but there's nothing fundamentally wrong with Ryanair. I mean, this is a, it's a currency play, and we're going to see a lot Absolutely. of pressure. Absolutely. I mean, Ryanair's... wrong with how many people actually fly their planes. Precisely. I mean, Ryanair's the strongest of a lot. As, as you said, they were the only ones really who had until today maintained their guidance. We've seen other uh, players like IAG and EasyJet already issue profit warnings. So I'm sure it was with great reluctance that Ryanair did so today. But it's, it's still in a very healthy position. I mean, Paris, when you look at the airlines, Right. So this is a play on okay, pound and, and currency for, for certain of the non-frail hairlines. But then it's also a commodity play in oil. A lot of them were hedged wrongly. O overall, can they recover? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it really comes back to looking at the attributes of the business models uh, long term. And we know that um, uh, Ryanair, for example, have uh, a, a cost advantage uh, versus you know, lots of their peers. Um, they're also expanding the routes to which they fly. I don't think that Brexit changes people's appetite for sort of traveling abroad. So, you know, it, I, I think, as, as, as John was saying, you, you know, you have to sort of take a step back mm -hmm. from looking at the very short term volatility and try and look at right. some of the longer term attributes of the business models. John, help me out here. Uh, Anthony, bring up the chart, if you would, here. Now, this is British Air, IAG, that Mr. Strickland uh, just noted. The circle is Brexit. Down we go. And to be honest, that's an ugly chart. Or, John, is this the mother of all buying opportunities, the excellence of what British Air has done at Terminal 5 and worldwide? Full disclosure, folks, I'm a fan. But then down we go. So do you pause here, or is it the mother of all Heathrow buying opportunities? 
Well, IAG, uh, the, the parent of British Airways, is st still a very strong performer, as I mentioned. They've also issued a profit warning, but Heathrow uh, is certainly their powerhouse and the powerhouse, as you said, of British Airways. They are, they are also uh, touched by Brexit, but they have a very diverse uh, exposure, of course, to, to global markets. If you want to come to the UK, and particularly if you're a business traveller, Heathrow is the airport you're right. going to come into. It's already very constrained, which is precisely why we've got this big debate now about new runway capacity. I literally said this, that evening after Brexit, when in all of London was numb, isn't the first order condition for any new prime minister to say, we're open for business, we're building Heathrow? I think it's absolutely imperative. It's, it's the clearest signal that we want to be a, a, a global player uh, of increasing yeah. stature. If we're going to move away from uh, uh, the focus on EU markets and really truly want to develop further trading relationships with, for example, China, then we have to have a, a gateway which is open for business and where, where airlines can get in. We've seen airlines in recent years either struggling to get into London or if they've got in at all, they've perhaps got slots at Gatwick. And as soon as they've had the chance, they've up sticks and moved up the road to Heathrow airport. Does Heathrow make money for the people of the United Kingdom? It's a massive contributor to the economy because, of course, it facilitates trade. It's, it's a, an access point for tourism. Many people may not know it's one of the biggest uh, sources of uh, cargo and freight traffic, too, because if we think of the belly hold capacity of these large, wide-bodied aircraft, it's not just freight aircraft that uh, fly cargo around. It's these aircraft, too, and these aircraft are the ones which are, are using Heathrow. So it's a massive net contributor to UK uh, economic performance. Yeah, Anton, this has been hugely controversial because, uh, first of all, most of the Greens, a lot of the environmentalists were against this, a lot of people living underneath this flight path, which is actually one-fourth of London, uh, also have been arguing against this. I think no uh, London mayor so far in the last 15 years has been for Heathrow. Now, what I don't really understand, and I understand it's a great message to say we're open for business, is that the government seems to say, well, look, we don't mind losing passporting, so we don't mind really hurting the city of London, but we'll give you Heathrow to make it a little bit better. It, it, it doesn't match up. Yes, I think, I mean, when you talk about sort of infrastructure plays, I mean, these are, these are sort of, you know, very long-term investments. I mean, countries and economies reap the benefits of investment in, in infrastructure over decades. And so I think that this is as much a strong long-term political message about the role of the UK in, in the global economy. Yeah. And I think that actually what it touches on is the fact that, um, you know, we could be in an environment where the investment in infrastructure more broadly actually starts to sort of move in a certain, you know, in a more positive direction. Right, but, but again, does the city not need passport? I mean, you need to protect the city before building a new runway to make sure that, that people feel good uh, about the fact that we have access to international business, John. I mean, I, th I think the two go together. Obviously, uh, city and financial sector are, are, are key users of Heathrow Airport, and uh, we need to be able to access other key uh, financial markets within Europe, around the globe, and, of course, all, all other business sectors too. And we have airport capacity elsewhere, and it's been quite clear that airlines yeah. have chosen even not to use it or they've moved out. Some airlines have decided not to even come to the UK because of a lack yeah. of access to Heathrow. i got a killer question here, John. Maybe you can help, Francine. Mm -hmm. You can help. Why did they move the champagne and salmon bar that was right outside Terminal 5, British Air. It's such a long walk. Now, Francine, help me here. You're starving. You get to the airport, and there's this great little champagne Tom, salmon you know bar. I'm a pret I'm, I'm, you know I'm a prep kind of girl. I, I mean, they moved, right. the, they moved the bar, the restaurant. It was terrible. That, that's a... 
I think that's a question you probably have to put to British Airways directly. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, to, to a serious point, I'm, I'm yeah. trying to save Tom Keane out of, uh, you know, the, the champagne and salmon question, <laughs> henceforth known as the pressing Keane question. But actually, how, how do these terminals get built? I mean, do you kind of think, right, well, we're putting the perfumes after lipstick, after the champagne bar so people drink and then buy more lipstick? Well, in an like airport that? like Heathrow, I mean, they can, they can literally have their pop-up shops. The airport is of such a large scale and has such a diverse clientele. There's an element by which the, you know, the, the retail and, and, and beverage off has to vary almost by the hour, and that can be done in quite a sophisticated way. What uh, uh, outbound Japanese travellers might buy or, or, or business executives to the US like Tom could be quite different to what the holiday brigade who are going to the Mediterranean would buy. Now, that cannot be done at small airports, but retail, again, is important in airports keeping their charges down to the airlines. That's a key driver, too. Good. Salmon and champagne. Right John, down. do something about JFK. That's all I ask for, John. Strickland, thank you so much. The difference, <laughs> folks, between Heathrow and JFK is absolutely shocking. Heathrow's got it totally uh, together. I want to bring in Howard Ward. He is Gamco's Chief Investment Officer of Growth uh, Equities. It's great to have you here. Uh, Howard, and let me just start by framing this. I, I was looking at your most recent note, and you said you're more concerned about the economic outlook and more cautious on the stock market's prospects uh, than usual. Give us the, the lay of the land as, as you see it here and, and the reason for, for the caution. Well, a lot of it uh, has to do with the lack of uh, significant GDP growth. Nominal growth is uh, trendlining, you know, you know, 3%, real growth 2%. Uh, my view is that higher labor costs are going to continue to pinch uh, profit margins, which peaked two years ago, and that the earnings expectations for next year are probably too high. There's even a risk that we end up resetting uh, earnings expectations for next year at uh, flat, possibly even negative. I think that if that were to happen, it would be very likely that the stock market would would go down. I think that globally, uh, things are weakening and that while the base case expectation at this point is not a recession for next year, the risk of a recession has risen. I think it has to be in your conversation at this point. How concerned are you about business investment? I was listening to the vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board, Stan Fisher, speaking yesterday. It's something that, that he talked about, the need for, for more of it. When you, when you look at the prospects for earnings, when you look at the, the climate more generally, how big a concern is that for you? Well, business investment comes out of profits, and profits have been flat for a year. And as I just mentioned, I think the expectations for next year are too high. Uh, another factor that's weighing on investment is business confidence, and business confidence has turned down. Uh, no surprise, I think, given this election season that we're facing and a policy uncertainty going forward, not just uh, in terms of, of the election, but also in terms of Fed policy. Um, so I think that uh, right now the prospects for business investment growing uh, are, are not great. It's been weak. I think it's going to stay weak. And until we get uh, some better growth, which may take uh, uh, working with the corporate tax code, I think that would be the first thing I would attack. Uh, we need to free up uh, business a bit from a regulatory standpoint as well. Uh, things that will result in higher profits, and that's how you're going to get uh, – businesses to invest. Have we been ignoring business confidence? You bring it up here. We talk a lot about consumer confidence. We look at the state of the consumer in the, in the U.S. economy, in the global economy. Are we not paying enough attention to, to business confidence? 
Probably not. I think that um, when we've had some of the big uh, headline risks over the uh, macro headline risk over the last several years, you know, what we've seen is that the the CEO suite has paid much more attention to headline global headline risk than has the U.S. consumer. And so uh, we've had situations where the U.S. consumer has gone about his business as usual for the most part, but the CEOs have pulled back um, because of their fears or their lack of confidence in the future. And I think that situation remains with us today, and it is worth paying attention to, mm. more Howard, attention to. Howard, we were talking alpha, beta, gamma earlier, and the basic idea of being more uh, defensive. When you're defensive, do you go to cash or do you buy something different? Tom, I buy something different, and that's because in my 40 years in this business, I have grown to believe with a lot of conviction that market timing is uh, essentially a loser's game. And so uh, when I become more concerned and more cautious about the outlook, the idea would be to reduce the so-called beta or, or volatility uh, of my returns relative to the market, and to do that by stock selection, focusing more on uh, the less, mostly the less economically sensitive parts yeah. of the market, consumer staples, healthcare, utilities, telecom, those areas are more likely to hold up well in a market decline if it happens. And there are many occasions where people much smarter than I have expected the market to go down for all sorts of good reasons, and it doesn't yeah. happen. And that's the danger in market timing. Is, is Jamie Dimon high beta or low beta? <laughs> Well, Jamie Dimon as a CEO is low beta. J.P. Morgan as a bank within the banking sector is probably one of the lower beta names. However, financial services can be a, a, a dangerous place to be uh, in a declining market. Uh, so I, I, that's an area that I am underweight and would recommend yeah, that. I just did this because David Gurr is looking at us like Greek letters and beta. <laughs> what are we talking here? Define beta. Beta is a price movement relative to the underlying index, right? Right. So you can you can pick your index. For most investors, that would be the S&P 500. And so it's, you know, how much of the return of your stock can be explained by the underlying volatility in that index? I, you know, I know that... Um, Politics is happening. Obviously, we're gearing up for this debate t tomorrow night, and, and a number of people we've spoken to recently, strategists and investors, have said uh, either the election's priced in or they're not that worried about the risk. Are you worried about it? And, and if you're not, uh, is a proxy for it, that being what's going to happen with trade, something of, of greater concern to you? Well, I haven't been worried about the debate because I've had the mindset that we're going to end – I mean about the election because I've had the, the mindset that we're, we're going to have a divided government. I have seen, however, with some concern, the ac price action in the healthcare sector the last several days, however, has been decidedly negative, and it's been that way primarily because of the growing concern of a democratic sweep, which would, of course, be more difficult for healthcare, the healthcare industry, uh, given the the uh, the Democrat uh, Democratic Party's designs to have greater control over pricing. Uh, in that area. So th there is some election risk, the, the, the risk being a democratic sweep. However, I still don't think that is the most likely uh, most likely outcome. Are you worried about trade? Or you hear Very the rhetoric about yes. it. So Are you trade, worried about protectionism? So trade is 60% uh, of global GDP. Trade is slowing. Uh, trade, I think, is going to slow further. Uh, if I'm right that the U.S. economy 
is going to slow over the next uh, several quarters. That's going to have a multiplier effect through Ripple Trade. We are through World Trade. We are the world's largest uh, yeah. imp importer. So if we sneeze, the exporters of the world are going to yeah. feel it. Mm -hmm. Just to bring this up, David, predict wise is this great summary of all the polls, somewhat like real clear politics. I think this has been widely reported. Secretary Clinton at ninety percent. Uh, Mr. Trump at 10% is the likelihood of investing. David over at PredictWise put out a note yesterday making clear 10% is still a chance to win for Mr. Trump. The Senate, 73% uh, to, to 28%. But the House has come in a little bit. It's not as grim as it was three or four days ago. But, Howard, I still don't see it, you know, looking at PredictWise. Yeah. I'd call it less than likely or even remote that the Democrats mm. would take the House. David? Yeah, I'm just, it reminds me of what Stan Collinger from Corvus was saying to us last week. He was not exactly the most uh, bright-eyed optimist about what's going to happen in D.C. and the, the prospects for uh, any sort of change to taxes or infrastructure spending seems pretty bleak. Yeah, Tom, I would say that if the market truly believed in a Democratic sweep, the entire market would be getting hurt, not just the healthcare sector. Yeah. I think you're getting some precautionary selling yeah. In healthcare, it may already be overdone at this point. Apple update. Well, how do you spell relief? Uh, <laughs> Apple seems to have decided that maybe they don't want to get into the business of building cars, and this is great <clears throat> news. The last thing the world needs is another automobile manufacturer, a business of tremendous capital intensity, uh, global, globally competitive like no other. And it would have been, I think, just been an, an abyss of throwing profits into a hole. Uh, and, and so I'm very, very hopeful now that Apple is going to restrain itself and focus on the software for mm -hmm. automobiles. Creating Should they buy Twitter? Software standards. Uh, I'm not an owner of Twitter. Um, I don't think the Twitter economic model is, has, is working yet. They don't make any money, Tom. So even as a bolt-on to Apple, it wouldn't... You know. I don't think that Apple and Twitter make a lot of yeah. sense, personally. I'd rather see Apple go out and buy uh, something like a Time Warner. And now, folks, a clinic. <laughs> Howard Ward of Gamco knows, as many others do, that scale is everything. Vinod Kosla, Kosla rather, of, of, of all sorts of entrepreneurial issues of two decades ago has maybe been the leader on this. Let me put things in scale. Time Warner is one-tenth as big as Apple. <laughs> Time Warner's EBITDA is less than a tenth of Apple. Their net income is less than a tenth of Apple and on and on. Howard, if we lined up 100 people who are smart, 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 they wouldn't know that. They'd know that Time Warner's smaller, but we forget the scope and scale that allows for mergers and acquisitions, transactions to work. Well, Tom, you've just uh, told everybody really what Apple's problem is. They're so big, the iPhone, uh, which generates about 70% of their profit, is so such a mammoth product that even if you were to buy, as I've suggested, a company like Time Warner, it's not going to have a material... Uh, uh, impact on the bottom line right away. It may over time, but right away, the impact would not do, do that great. That's actually not so bad because that means the risk of that kind of, of an investment up would not minimal. be... Right. right. How, do you suggest a set of bolt-ons? 
yes. to something I like think, Apple? I think that it's their their only choice is to go after you know you know they have the luxury of considering companies of the the size of Time Warner as a bolt on. But uh, that's what the numbers would suggest, and I think that that right. is the route they need to go. I think content is king. I think Apple is going to want to have uh, their own content uh, to differentiate some of their products. So I do think that's the direction right. they should be going in. And, and if, if you want to innovate with software on the automobile side, fine. But otherwise, let's go back to more of the, 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 the TMT kind of business that we would associate Apple with. David Gura. Time Warner's cash is approximately one eightieth eight zero of Time Warner. It's not a hundredth of Apple. It's about yeah, an eighty yeah, yeah, of yeah, Apple. Yeah. Excuse me. You, you say that that Apple should be getting into to content. What explains the delay in doing that? We were talking about the car falling to falling to the wayside here, perhaps wisely. Why has has Apple seemingly lost sight of that? And you look at the problems they've been having with their services just generally over these last few years. How worrisome is that to you? Well, I don't think that they've they probably haven't lost sight of it. I I think that they you know it's been reported in the media previously that they've had conversations with. Time Warner and others, uh, you know, who knows where those stand or, or what happened to them. Uh, I do think that maybe they have decided to wait and see how this whole uh, evolution of the skinny bundle uh, plays out uh, versus versus today's uh, uh, big bundle uh, for, uh, for, for cable programming. I think that in the case of Time Warner, the Time Warner wins under any scenario, whether it's a la carte or bundle, they're going to win because of the channels they have. And they're not burdened with the, the ESPN problem, uh, where they're getting, where, where Disney's getting about $7 a subscriber for ESPN. And if you go to the skinny bundle, it would be hard to perhaps replicate that. So, uh, Time Warner, I think wins under, under either condition, uh, and, and there may be other media companies that Apple could be interested in, uh, but I clearly think uh, that the future for Apple, g- given their primary devices are used for viewing content and listening to content, that media would, would have some synergy. And as Tom said earlier, scale is important. So I think moving in that direction is the logical scenario for them. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if that were to happen. While we're in this space, I just want to get your sense of what's been going on with Viacom and CBS and that whole empire. Looking at the, the non-passive observers you are of, of that space, what do you make of, of what's been happening there? Well, that's a drama that's uh, uh, hard for me to talk about uh, uh, in any real sophisticated mm-hmm. way. I don't own Viacom. I, I do own CBS. You probably know Mario and the value side of our firm are, are big holders of Viacom. Uh, Mario uh, is one of the largest, and our firm is one of the largest holders of the voting stock of Viacom. So there's a drama there playing out that I'm, I'm not part of it, and I'm hesitant to comment yeah. about that too much. Fair enough. You did well there, David. That was good. (laughs) I tried. (laughs) Howard, before we let you uh, go, there's a caution on the market. You mentioned earlier you don't do cash. You go down to more conservative stocks. Are electric utilities today like they were in our ute? That's a great question, Tom, because, you know, we have had a bit of a backup in interest rates uh, in recent months, and the utilities have generally sold off in in tandem with that. And... um, I think that the consensus opinion right now, or, or, or more people than not, believe that interest rates are heading higher. Uh, I happen to take the other side of that bet right now. I think rates have, are, have peaked or are close to peaking, 
And consequently, anything that's a bond proxy, I think, represents better mm -hmm. value than the market believes sure. right now. And I'd be a buyer of these stocks. The business itself is, is, has changed at, at the margin. Howard Ward, thank you so much. Ever the optimist. From New York, this is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. This is a real pleasure, folks. For the next half hour, we're going to speak to one of the grizzled pros of the heart of America, which is the Midwest, our agriculture, our food business, and frankly, those of us in three zip codes in New York take for granted. And the expert on this is one Andagnan of J.P. Morgan. We speak first of Caterpillar and the um, showing of the door to Mr. Oberhelman, and then we move on to the state of our Midwest agriculture economy and thrilled to have you with us um, this morning caterpillar was such a juggernaut and about six years ago it ended you've been way out front on tepid revenue growth let's begin with their chairman and ceo douglas oberhelman was he shown the door well i think uh, you could answer that either yes or no uh, i suspect that the timing surprised people yesterday a little bit uh, caterpillar will report its earnings q3 earnings next week uh, and they usually give guidance for revenue for the following year on that call and so perhaps the interpretation is is that uh, caterpillar is facing a fifth year of a downturn and that's unprecedented so if i wanted to put the bear case together i'd say yeah. Maybe that's why Doug is leaving earlier than we might have expected. What part of securities analysis do you judge any of the commodity equities on? Is it, is it a price to sales that's dirt cheap? Is it revenue growth that isn't there? Do you move down the income statement to cash flow or to EBITDA? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. We generally, for machinery stocks, we think of them as being highly cyclical. And so we tend to look at a price to earnings, so a PE. And for machinery stocks, usually when the earnings is at the lowest, that's when the multiple, um, PE multiple is at its highest, uh, generally about 20 times the trough earnings. And then when earnings are at the highest, we put the lowest multiple on those earnings, and that's generally a 10 multiple on the PE. So it's a cyclical business. We look at how well they're able to manage the earnings through the cycle. Let's talk about the, the last cycle uh, featuring Doug Oberhelman. He, it, it was not a good one. When you look at commodity prices, this was a, a tough market in which to be the chief executive of Caterpillar, to be pursuing the, the kind of M&A that he was pursuing. Yeah, there's no question when we look back uh, and uh, look at what happened. We, he did buy Bucyrus, uh, one of the uh, two remaining uh, machinery names in mining. Mm -hmm. uh, he bought that at the peak of the cycle. But, you know, did any of us see the peak of the cycle at that point? Did any fair, of us fair. the stock on that uh, acquisition? No. I mean, I think we were all caught up a little bit on the 
never-ending growth in China and the build-out of infrastructure in China. Yeah. So it was ill-timed, for and, sure. And David Gurl from Peak, they've taken $20 billion out of revenue. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a crutch yep. to say, how's this playing in Peoria? But in the case of Caterpillar, we can say, how's this playing in Peoria? I wonder what what the folks there make of, of this change and what you can tell us about uh, Mr. Oberhelman's successor, that being one Jim Umpleby. What do we know about him and, and how he might change course here at Caterpillar? Well, the good news is that uh, Umpleby ran uh, the business that's called Energy and Transportation, and that business has been the crown jewel of Caterpillar, or within that business, there's a business, a turbine engine business called Solar, and that's always been extraordinarily well run. Um, So that's the good news. We have a good operations guy coming in uh, to take the place of Doug, and that's probably what Caterpillar needs as we go through this cycle, because we don't really know what the duration of the down cycle is going to be. So got a good operations guy going in there. Uh, That's probably good news. You know, and I was going to go out this weekend and, and look for a D3K2 Tier 4 final dozer. This with a Cat C4.4 Acert engine, 80 horsepower net, operating weight, you know, 17,000 pounds. What is that, eight tons or so? Park it right by the Central Park um, Reservoir. Yeah, put it right, right yeah. out there by the Central. <laughs> run, run it up there to the Trump rink and then take that puppy up to the reservoir. And when you look at this and the romance of Caterpillar, and you're the pro on this. Was it a mistake to have a chairman and a CEO together? Would there would would there have been less ill decisions, bad decisions, misdecisions if there'd been a check of a separate chairman? I don't think so. In this case, quite honestly, they've got a very strong board, and the board approved the acquisition of Bucyrus. And, you know, again, at the time when the acquisition was made, um, you know, construction globally was very strong. Mining was very strong. China's GDP growth was accelerating, not decelerating. So I I don't think that having a separate CEO and chairman would necessarily have made any difference in this case. I think it was just uh, everybody got excited about the upcycle and... You know, remember other companies like mm-hmm. GE were considering getting into the mining equipment also. So, yeah. you know, they weren't the only ones chasing this yeah. dream. Let's get to our next section. We've got a couple more minutes here, Ann Dugdon, with J.P. Morgan. What's the state of the American farmer right now? The American farmer is facing a fourth year of probably uh, losing money, if, mm. or at least uh, break even to losing money. Uh, I would say, to excuse the pun, our farmers in the Midwest look like deer in headlights. Uh, They are not buying equipment, and they will not be buying equipment for what could be several years. Uh, We've had seven great years, and when you ask farmers what an agricultural cycle looks like, they say, huh, maybe seven years like the Bible. So we've had seven great years. We're probably looking at seven horrible years. So uh, it's not looking good out there in the Midwest for our U.S. farmers. Having reported in the Midwest on agriculture, I'm always struck by uh, how involved farmers are in studying those cycles, how on top of those cycles they, they seem to be here. Uh, your sense as well, that they have a pretty keen sense of where we stand and where we're headed? Yes, actually. Um, you know, some of them have told me over the years that they are always pessimistic <laughs> because they know that somebody is going to squeeze the profit from them yeah. somehow. So I, I think they recognize, you know, they most of them lived through the 80s when the farming economy was horrendous. So they have long memories. And so 
you know, they tend to be, they spend when they have money and they don't spend when they don't have money. Do you have a buy, hold, sell or anything? What's your strong buy right now, given the diagonal gloom I'm hearing? Yeah. Mm. I'm not very upbeat on our group in general, and in particular for machinery, uh, if we look forward into 2017, you know, if interest rates start to rise, that is mm-hmm. not a good thing for the purchase of machinery. So I'm pretty neutral to negative the group. Yeah. I, Let's do I this. am still underweight John Deere. Okay. And dived in with us with J.P. Morgan, David Gurr, and Tom Keene. And we say good morning to everyone across the Midwest. And 149 acres in Fulton County, Illinois. And you know, I got a lot of family that's from out there. David, I'd say like a quarter of my family. Is that right? The rich ones are from Fulton County, <sighs> Illinois. 149 acres for 475000 It's some, you know, pasture and, and, and acreage, I should say, cut out of a forest. And then there's some rough pasture in the backside. I mean, and that's the dynamic that we perceive of America. That's not the world of Van Dygden, is it? I mean, we look at that like as farmland for sale, but it really isn't. What's the normal land you look at across the great Midwest? How much acreage is a real farm? Oh, I would say that uh, 10 or 15 years ago, 2,000 acres was considered a large farm. Uh, And then we had the agricultural cycle and farmers started to buy acres or rent acres. Uh, And I would say today a large farm is considered about 3,000 acres. Uh, And uh, I have uh, spent time with farmers in Iowa who farm as much as 10,000 acres. So, you know, we've really seen uh, acres grow and farms get larger uh, over the years. You know, uh, when you look at a company like Caterpillar, let's just use that as the as the perch from which to, to look at, uh, at at this sector. Where's the growth? Is it in agriculture? Is it in mining? What what what's the the future look like in terms of growth? Well, I think that that's unclear right now. Uh, you know, what we are seeing in mining for sure is a lot of supplies coming out on the mining side. So we've closed a lot of U.S. coal mines. We've closed a lot of mines around the world, and so we're resetting supply and demand. What we really need to see now is demand accelerate. China is consuming hard commodities, uh, but its economy is kind of stabilizing at about 6% growth. And that's still growth, but it's just slower growth than everyone had anticipated. So I think mining might be the first and market that we could see some light at the end of the tunnel because mining companies are now beginning to make a little bit of money. And perhaps in 17 or 18, if you're making a little bit of money, you open the purse strings a little bit. So I think uh, of all the end markets we look at, mining might be the first one to put a bottom in. Tom, we've gotten a sense of sentiment uh, among farmers. Let me ask you here, Anne, about sentiment among the, the companies themselves. You were out at a big conference in Las Vegas last month, wandering around talking to, to, to companies, to folks who were buying equipment. What, what, what did it feel like out there in Las Vegas last month when you were there for that conference? You know, we were kind of hoping to find a bright spot. We were hoping that, you know, somebody would come and say, yes, we're buying equipment and things look great. Uh, I actually sat beside um, a gentleman who was on his way to the Mine Expo show uh, on the airplane when I was heading out there, and he was from Kazakhstan. Mm. Uh, and I think he said it best. He said he was coming to the show to look and talk and see what equipment was out there. But he wasn't going to be buying anything. Mm. So I think there's still a lot of hesitancy out there around the world in terms of actually spending money. 
Uh, and I just said with the Chicago Fed, and of course all of our Federal Reserve systems is great, great research on land costs and that. And the Chicago Fed has a great district farm loan portfolio with major or severe repayment problems. The good news is we're not back to the 80s, but we're going back where we were 15 years ago rather rapidly. How sustained do you see these challenges on farm loans? And do we have a risk of getting back to the ugliness of the 1980s? You know, the only thing we can say about the difference this cycle versus the 1980s is that farmers did not leverage up as much this cycle. I think they learned their lessons in the 80s when they had uh, interest rates at about 18 percent and debt to total capital on the farmer's balance sheet was north of 60 percent. So this cycle, farmers did not leverage up. They had a good time. They spent cash. Uh, Some of them did take on debt to expand, but we're nowhere close to where we were in the 80s. Now, all that being said, it doesn't mean that we don't have a long down cycle ahead of us and farmers are going to have to continue to tighten their belts. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean that it's going to be all roses for somebody like John Deere, but but the farmers themselves, uh, you know, they're not nearly uh, in as bad a position as they were back in the 80s. John Deere hasn't had a bear market. It's basically a 2000... Uh, eight 2007 valuations has really held up quite well. Why is that, and why are you so cautious? Well, I think investors keep looking at demand, and as long as the world's population continues to grow, there is this thesis that, uh, you know, we have to feed the world, and eventually supply and demand will come back into balance. Uh, John Deere had expected perhaps uh, one weather event would help the supply side of the equation. But instead, this year, we got almost perfect weather in the Midwest. And so, you know, farmers are very Mm -hmm. proud when they grow a great crop and when they grow record crops. However, it doesn't help when everybody has a great crop. So, you know, we're now looking into 17 and 18 as maybe, you know, maybe the weather will help them next year or the Mm -hmm. year after. Michael sends in a message, and also Carl, north of New York City, and Dignan. Is there money in chickens? I don't think there's a lot of money in the livestock side right now. Uh, What happened uh, when corn got to $7, we saw a lot of uh, the protein side contract. You know, you killed all your beef, you killed all your dairy cows, you killed all your uh, pork and your your chickens. (laughs) And now we have uh, rebuilt all of the supply side on the protein side. So I would be yeah. uh, cautious on the protein side in the near term. And never enough time. And Dagden, thank great. you so much yeah. to J.P. Morgan. We get a ginormous response when Ms. Dagden uh, joins us. She is with J.P. Morgan, and she's, well, I mean, folks, there's, there isn't a, a fireplace mantle that could hold the trophies that she <laughs> has brought home with her dedicated work. Again, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. I've got 55 pages here of Ann Dignan. I'm not going to send it out. Please contact your representative at J.P. Morgan. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.